you know what I'd love to see? Let's remake like something like Friday the 13th, but let's put big names in, huge names, not like people that are aspiring to get a career going, but let's throw in Meryl Streep in the Betsy Palmer role and just see what happens. Meryl Streep, Friday the 13th, coming soon to a theater near you. Well, hey there. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades, who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. We've got a pretty decent slate of movies to pick through this week, ranging from a Tony Award-winning musical premiering on Apple+, Plus to the latest horror offering from James Wan on HBO Max, and then to an action thriller hitting Netflix, and finally, the latest feature from Paul Schrader, which is being dealt out into theaters. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th, so we picked out a handful of films worth watching that present a unique perspective on the tragedy. Then, we follow that up with a look at the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with links to our social media, etc., etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you want to sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, please tell your movie-loving friends about us and let us know what you think in the review section wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Well, this is a weird week, can I tell, tell you? Because there are a lot of documentaries out now about 9-11 because of the timing. Yep. This is Bruce Miller talking, coming at you from, from Sioux City, Iowa. One of the big things that's, that's premiering this weekend is Come From Away. Come From Away is a Broadway show based on um, the experiences of the people in Gander, Newfoundland. And, you know, you go, oh, a 9-11 musical? That really sounds bad. And it is so uplifting and so different. It's done on stage. It's, it'll be opening again in, the, in this fall um, because it's so popular. It's one act. There is not an intermission, but they filmed it just like they did Hamilton. And it's done with chairs. They have 12 actors, 12 chairs, and they move the chairs around so they approximate something else. It could be the cabin of an airline. It could be the town hall. It could be a bar. It could be um, the Humane Society. I mean, it's a lot of different things and they do it just with chairs and all of the actors play dozens of characters. So it's very, very creative, but it also is very uplifting. And that's kind of an odd, an odd word to use with a 9-11 anything. But it's how these people came together in a really tough time to realize that we are more friendly to each other than we realize. And when in times of trouble, you go for the helpers and here the helpers were. The town has about 6,000 people and there were more than 6,000 people there. So you can imagine how overwhelmed they were. And they do goofy things. You know, you, you learn a bit about the, um, the culture there. They kiss a fish, that's a big thing in Gander. And they got all these visitors to kiss the fish. And um, they helped all the animals that were on the plains. They tried to get help people get calls back to their families so they knew that everybody was all right. Um, it's, it's very, very moving, very, very moving. And um, when you come to the end of it, when you hear 
how these plain, they call them the plain people, how the plain people reacted to the hospitality of Gander. Um, you can't come away from this whole situation without thinking there is hope. And I think that's the most um, telling thing about Come From Away is that it is very hopeful. So do see it, even if you don't like musicals, even if you don't like people stomping around on a stage, this is one to see. And that is coming out. Apple TV Plus. I think it's premieres tonight, the 10th. Bruce, I know you actually have been to Broadway a, a great number of times. That's something that you saw. Oh, yeah. Usually I'll go in the spring before the Tony Awards and see everything that's nominated. And this was nominated a couple of years ago, won one Tony for direction. But it's one of those things where you go, do I want to see this? Is this something I should see? And then you get in there and you say, oh, look at that set. It's just a bunch of trees. This is going to be bad. And you, you build yourself up to really not like it. And it wins you over right away because it's so overwhelmingly positive. Is Apple TV Plus starting to turn into like the musical streaming service? Because just this summer they've had this and Schmigadoon. Yeah, I, th I think that they are realize realizing that this is a new revenue stream for all of them. And it, it doesn't appear that it's hurting any kind of audience for live theater. Um, in fact, it's just, it's a lot of, if you're a, a theater geek, you want to see the original cast. That's just the way people are. I want to see the original cast. Well, when the seats are like nearly $200 a piece, that idea is not going to fly. This is a great way of getting to see that original cast, if you'd like. And then also you could go still go see it and it's not going to be as expensive the next time you might go, you know? I mean, come on. I will spend to the end of the moon just to see the original cast of something because that's me. Theater is what I love to do because it takes me away from all the rest of the world that I cover. I spent $777 on Hamilton tickets for one ticket. And if I'm going to spend that kind of money, you can imagine that I would spend the money for another show like this, uh, just to say I saw the original cast. And there is something that is about those people that make it a little different. They've lived with the material. They've kind of worked it over. So I like that. And I think streaming services are going to see this and they're going to try and make a deal with every show that's on Broadway. It's another revenue stream for these people. The actors will get paid a little more. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. And I don't think it'll kill live theater at all. And I can't imagine it is going to cost them that much either to, to make or to, to put these out. At best, it's working out the contracts. The lawyers are going to have the biggest headache because they have to figure out how do they pay the people and especially if it goes on a streaming streaming service, do you get a piece of the profit or you just get a flat fee? Well, that other voice that you're hearing is Jared McNett out in Masonsburg, Iowa. Hello. Jared, of the, the new releases, I think maybe the most apt for you to hop on and tell us about is Malignant. So my uh, local theater has a Malignant. When I went on their website last night, I somehow convinced myself that it was out yesterday just based on the fact that like there was, you know, showtimes and everything when I went on the website. So I got all excited. I hopped in my car. I drove over there. No malignant screenings yesterday, but it is uh, in theaters and on HBO Max now. It's from uh, James Wan, who, of course, is responsible for what? Probably three of the biggest horror franchises of the past 20 years. Uh, Saw, Insidious. Conjuring. Yep. And uh, basically the plot of this one uh, this woman basically has these like continuing uh, visions of these really like horrifying murders 
And it just gets worse and worse when she starts to realize that those are more than just visions and dreams. They're actually like real pretty much. It's weird. The trailer didn't sell me on this as much as the posters that I've seen. The posters are very like 70s, like Italian horror inspired with like the way the poster looks and everything that sold me far more than the trailer did. And the fact that it's James Wan, those are the two things that they're definitely going to get me out to see this probably later today once I get off work. I know he's mentioned giallos, the Italian kind of subgenre of of horror, Dario Argento, all that as a uh, big influence for Malignant. Yeah. Annabelle Wallace is the main actress, and she has been in some of the Annabelle movies. Okay. But the character that she's playing in Malignant and the film Malignant itself has nothing to do with any of the pre-established James Wan filmography, I guess. All, all of the various universes that, that he has foisted upon an unsuspecting public. I really respect him for making something as big as uh, Aquaman and then going right back to doing horror movies again. I respect that. If that's what you want to keep doing, keep on keeping on as long as you can, especially when you have that kind of goodwill. You can just keep doing this forever if he wants. I mean, all he has to do is, or at least how he's done with the the Conjuring films and the Saw movies, it's you make one that goes gangbusters and then pass it off to other people to take it on down the line. You take your... You take your cut. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Chris, you just uh, you just saw The Conjuring for the first time the other day, right? Yeah, that has been all, all of those films have been a, a huge blind spot for me, and The Conjuring itself I thought was great. Yeah, it's the perfect level of creepy with a little bit of silly to it, intentionally or not. Yeah, I enjoyed it tremendously. I don't know when I'm gonna find the need to revisit it anytime soon. When you'll conjure up enough time. Ooh, alley-oop. Yeah, if I'm not grabbed, I won't hang. That's not going to (laughs) happen. And I'm not like you, Jared. I don't like horror films. You know that. But um, the idea of, Mm -hmm. like, this is not my Friday, where I go, oh, God, I got to see that thing. We got to go. I will say, also, I mean, the horror movies are something that you really do need to experience in a crowd. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Even if it's something like, you know, inviting a bunch of people over to your house and turning off all the lights and everybody kind of piles onto the couch with popcorn and whatever else. I mean, there are plenty of horror movies like that I will still enjoy the hell out of when I watch them by myself. But there's no comparison between uh, that and watching it in a theater with people. Watching a good horror movie in a theater with people is, is some of the best fun you can have at a theater. Just the way people react and freak out. Okay, Jared. Do you sit in the very back row so that nobody can kind of grab you behind, from behind? No, I usually like to sit like somewhere in the middle, pretty much. So do you ever have somebody, they'll kind of like, ah, and then they, they try to scare you while you're doing watching the show? I think at this point, as much as anything, the only times I get startled during horror movies is just other people in the theater freaking out. It's usually not from anything in the movie, just because I've seen so many horror movies and I'm usually pretty good at knowing when stuff's going to happen. But at this point, it's I, I'll more like jump or something or startle when someone is just freaking out like way too much at something. <laughs> they really are underrated because you look back and 
Hitchcock made a lot of horror films, but they never really gave him his due. And you look at the list of classic movies and shoot, his stuff is always on there. Um, and I think you look at today, maybe, maybe Jordan Peele is getting the kind of attention he deserves. But a lot of these other ones, they could be Roger Corman for all we care. And what's weird is like, I've still noticed some like really big, like national publications and stuff are still not very good at covering horror movies in particular. And that's been a through line for like decades. Just the other day, people were kind of making fun of a review. I don't even know what website it was from, but it was basically comparing the original Halloween to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and saying that Halloween kind of ripped off Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those two movies have nothing in common stylistically or plot lies or like anything whatsoever. And it's weird to like still be getting that kind of stuff, like just way off, even 40 years later. <laughs> you know what I'd love to see? Let's remake like something like Friday the 13th, but let's put big names in, huge names, not like people that are aspiring to get a career going. But let's throw in Meryl Streep in the Betsy Palmer role or something and just see what happens. I think, you know, because I think that's where you could see the worth of the genre, even though I don't like it. Anyway, there you go. Meryl Streep, Friday the 13th, coming soon to a theater near you. I was going to say to that point, look how well it's worked for movies, even just from the past couple of years when they don't even have stars on that level, but have like really, you know, solid talent or to great talent. Like, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya got nominated for Get Out. And like that movie doesn't work as well without someone like him in that or Tony Collette in Hereditary, same kind of thing. Those aren't even like the top of the A-list as we would think of it. And still, you know, you get actors even on that level and you're gonna have a really good product a lot of the time. Lupita Nyong'o. Yeah, she was incredible. She should have been nominated for that. But there's a prejudice against horror films where they go, nah, we're not nominating that. And yet some kid can put on Freddie Mercury's clothes and uh, lip sync to the music and win an Oscar. I'm glad we can get in another shot at uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Any opportunity to take Bohemian Rhapsody down a peg is fine by me. Chris, what do you got? Kate, which is on Netflix. It's a revenge action assassin stunt spectacular in a very similar vein to John Wick because one of the producers was a producer on on the John Wick movies and Nobody as well which we've talked about previously the you know bless up Bob Odenkirk returning to set of Better Call Saul yes he's doing well he is doing well it seems very similar to Gunpowder Milkshake, another Netflix kind of action movie that we've we've talked about previously. The loose plot, an assassin played by Mary Elizabeth Winsett, ends up having a, a kid going around with her, the child of somebody who she's killed, and ends up sort of being cop and a half. But there's a weird pull. Bruce, you probably like cop and a half. No. Chris, I'm a, I'm a big fan of cop and a half. <laughs> I'm passing. Cop and a half. The Burt Reynolds child movie burt reynolds norman d golden the second movie thank you very much yeah so it's got a little bit of that woody harrelson's in the mix as well woody harrelson whose career track now seems very much similar in a way to where nicholas cage is like it definitely seems like woody harrelson's maybe taking a lot of you know paycheck movies <laughs> 
It's really bizarre to me that he's in the new Venom movie. It's weird to see that. So, yeah, Kate. It's on Netflix. Mary Elizabeth Winstead sneakily has a pretty good uh, action movie track record at this point. Mm-hmm. She was good in uh, Gemini Man, which I think was underappreciated. She was one of the better parts of Birds of Prey. You know, even going back to, well, Death Proof is more like horror, but still there's some good action stuff in, in Death Proof as well. And then, of course, I mean, you can leave or take uh, the two diehard movies she was in, but that's that's the foundation for a pretty solid uh, action career at this point, I think. But don't you hate when they have a little kid in with all this? Ugh, a kid always ruins something like this. Don't babysit if you're a killer. <laughs> Rule number one in the, the, the killer handbook is no babysitting. How many times do they have that? And then it's like they're worried about the kid. Let the kid go. <laughs> if Hitman uh, didn't look after kids sometimes, Jean Renault would not have a career at all. So <laughs> look how nice Liam Neeson would have been if he didn't have to worry about his children. So that's all the new stuff this week. Well, there is the card counter, which is in theaters. And that's uh, Paul Schrader's new one. Is it on Amazon? No, it's uh, it's in theaters. I don't know when it's going to come out streaming. I'm pretty excited about this. Tiffany's in it. I love Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, she's in it. Oscar Isaac's in it. Willem Dafoe is in it, which I don't even know how many times now that means Willem Dafoe's been in a Paul Schrader movie because he's been in quite a few at this point. He's in Autofocus, Dog Eat Dog, which is just a bonkers movie from a few years ago that also had Nicolas Cage in it. Weird little two-hander, yeah. Very excited about uh, Card Counter, and I'm really hoping at some point that my theater uh, actually gets it. So Oscar Isaac is a card sharp. His character's name is William Tell. <laughs> I don't know. That's I, I'm already a little. <laughs> Wasn't it said the Venice Film Festival? And I think it got great reviews. So there you go. Yeah. So today, as we're recording this, and hopefully when it comes out, is uh, September 10th. Tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So for the staff picks, I think we can talk about movies to watch that connect to 9-11, whether it's just a personal connection that you maybe have to a film, or I don't know if anybody's going to claim AI for having to have the Twin Towers airbrushed out of that one after the fact. Or a bad company and collateral damage for getting pushed back. Those are two that I remember. What was the, the Mariah Carey movie? Glitter debuted on <laughs> It opened on that day, and then thanks, Jared. I know uh, you've got a you got your pick all lined up. I do, and uh, mine that I went ahead and uh, put on the list is from uh, 2008. Uh, it's a documentary. I'm sure more than a few people have seen it because it also got turned into a uh, movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I don't remember what the name of uh, that one was. But the documentary is called Man on Wire, and it's basically about this. Uh, very delightful uh, French uh, daredevil who in the 70s snuck into some of the upper levels of the Twin Towers and did a high wire act between the two Twin Towers of the uh, World Trade Center. Um, And basically the documentary uh, is set up like a heist movie, actually, which is kind of fun. And it has a lot of the actual footage of them getting ready to like do the walk and then some actual photos and stuff of the walk and then they have like reenactments and everything in the movie as well and one thing that i think is kind of interesting um 
about the movie is obviously the Twin Towers play such an important role in it, but uh, they never at, at any point during the movie mention 9-11 at all, which is basically a conscious choice on the director's part. And he kind of talked about that, basically saying that, you know, what the French guy did was like so beautiful that it would be just kind of wrong to uh, have such a horrifying story bleed into something that was this really incredible kind of thing. So it's a really, really good documentary um, and is worth watching if you somehow haven't seen it, which I know Man on Wire is kind of one of those documentaries that a lot of people have seen, even if they're not documentary fans. So, No, I loved it too. Uh, the, uh, the version that was fictionalized I was consciously aware of the the green screen technology they used to make this happen. And when you watch the real thing, you go, oh, my God, that guy could die. There's just a little more thrill factor. It's so weird to me that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in like two movies that were like narrative versions of documentaries that are way better because he was also wasn't he in the uh, Snowden movie, too. And like. Citizen Four is a much better documentary than that is as a narrative movie. And I haven't seen The Walk, but I mean, Man on Wire is incredible. And I know people are not as big of a fan of The, the Walk as they are of Man on Wire. So it's weird that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in two of those. His new series, Mr. Corman, covers the pandemic and it's just all over the place. And he was a producer on it. So he must like reality, but he doesn't know really what to do with it. But Man on Wire is great. The goofy characters that are all involved in that, you go, it would take somebody like this to, to actually to even figure it out. How would you do it? You know, it's just, it's crazy. Is it Petit? Philippe Petit. Is actually in the new documentary series that Spike Lee has been working on for HBO. There's a big you know, section on the events of, of Man on Wire. And that kind of leads into my pick for 9-11 movie, which is a movie that came out a little over a year after 9-11. It's also directed by Spike Lee, and it's the 25th hour. Maybe I'm grabbing some low-hanging fruit here because any list compiled about quote-unquote 9-11 movies, it's always at the top, and there's a reason for it. 25th hour is about a convicted New York drug dealer named Montgomery Brogan, who is spending his last 24 hours in New York before he has to turn himself in to the police to start a seven-year jail term. The cast is absolutely incredible. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ed Norton. Frank Cox, of course, is his dad. Rosaria Dawson's in there. A really well-rounded film that only kind of glances at 9-11, but in a way that the absence of the towers is an aspect of the film. Very good. Also uh, written by David Benioff, who would go on to make literal UPS trucks full of, of money doing Game of Thrones. It's genuinely one of the best movies of Spike Lee's career and definitely one of the best of the 2000s as well. Absolutely agree. How about you, Bruce? Well, you know, I could go with, I could go with some like the Hurt Locker, which would be interesting. Um, but the Flight ninety three, 
you remember Flight 93? I thought that captured the terror really well. And oddly enough, one of the editors on the film used to be a, um, uh, well, is a relative of, of a copy editor at the journal. And uh, we would hear about how this was all being put together and how it was, how it was edited. And I thought that was just fascinating because it does build the tension where you are on this flight and you're seeing these people, wait a minute now, we've got to do something and they react. And uh, it tells you another 9-11 sto another story. So um, I don't know, I, so much, it's, isn't it hard when you watch it on TV and then you relive it? Uh, that's the thing that I, now I know I'm ancient and I'm older than you guys, but for me, having seen that day in a classroom, I was teaching in a classroom when somebody knocked on the door and said, turn on the TV right away, you won't believe what's happening. And we turned on the TV and my class sat and watched all of this uh, unfolding in just mere minutes. And it looked like the biggest disaster film you've ever seen that you couldn't believe. And it was so raw and I think when you see the real thing, it's very difficult to see somebody fictionalize something like that. So, yeah, and I thought these people came very close to capturing that kind of uh, chaos that must have been possible on that, at that time. Just to make clear, you're talking about the Paul Greengrass one, right? Because there was also a TV one that was yeah. like a similar, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a name, there's an actor in there that I, I could tell you who is who's talked about it a lot. I should look it up. I was going to um, say Mark Wahlberg. No, not <laughs> yet. That's a, <laughs> no, 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 that's a different. That's a different kind of uh, talking about. Then they also have some people who were actually involved with it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, uh, the the editing on the whole thing is what I think really does help it, because it's cut in a way that you go, oh my god. This is happening right now. I can see this. Um, so anyway, that's my pick. By the way, if anyone doesn't know the Mark Wahlberg thing, he once said that if he had been on one of those flights, the things would have gone differently. Oh, of course it would. You know how tall he is? So that's that's uh, that's Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> take on 9-11 at one point. Um, I think no. go for it. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think uh, that United 93 of any of the ones that are like very, very specifically about 9-11 versus, you know, just incidentally about it or, or things like that is probably one of the only like responsible ones because it basically is kind of a docudrama and I don't know. It would just feel a lot more weird. Like even the World Trade Center movie with uh, Nicolas Cage that Oliver Stone did feels a little, a little bit stranger to me than United ninety three. But I might be, I might be wrong in that. Have either of you visited the memorial? You must. You must. It's uh, perhaps the most grueling day you'll ever have because um, you see everything, and there is film in there of people jumping off the buildings. Um, I mean, it's, it's brutal. And they do have things that are cordoned off where you say, if you don't wanna see something that's very upsetting, don't go in this room. And you go into another room and it's a recreation of what the streets look like 
um, near the trade center with all this ash. And they had, they just took everything from a store and put it in there. And it's real ash that's in there um, from the, from the 9-11. You see the bent uh, metal, you see, you walk down the steps that the people rush down as they're trying to get out of the building. It's, it's brutal, but it's one of those things that I think people need to see to really understand what went on during that time. Um, you know, so often we hear people like uh, Holocaust deniers who say, oh, this didn't happen or this didn't happen. Here you are there, you see this and you realize this is just one of the worst times in our country. And uh, not that you wanna go to a museum or a, uh, a recreation of that kind of stuff, but it does teach you a lesson and I think, it's a great place to visit, but I don't know if I would go back a second time. It's like you were saying when you were talking about come from away, Bruce. My memory of 9-11 is very complicated, as everyone's, I'm sure, is. But that the sweet spot of America kind of coming together for the first few weeks after 9-11 and feeling very united and connected is powerful. And I, you know, I, I specifically remember that, but then I also remember feeling things turning to jingoism and then, you know, into all of a sudden Colin Powell's talking about yellow cake uranium at the UN. And there's any number of ways that it slid away from that and was recontextualized into this other thing. I mean, you look at, you know, Rudy Giuliani and the arc that, that his perception has taken over the years. It's been really hard in a lot of films to get the right tone to where it's not something that's sappy. It doesn't like, I mean, I would never trust and nothing against Hallmark movies, but I would never trust like a Hallmark movie to, to not, you know, dip into that 9-11 type drama. Although, although it's not a Hallmark movie, it's kind of one. Remember Me definitely tried to, to dip into 9-11 and that did not go well at all. They basically just shoehorned in a character dying at the end of the movie as a twist that they die in 9-11. There's, there's a lot of opportunities to, to screw that up and it's not something that you want to, to screw up. I was in New York not long after 9-11 and really to go down there because of course you know what are we we of course we want to see everything and you go down they don't want you down there the, the subways weren't running down there so you couldn't easily get there so you had to take a cab and you go there and you see all of these fences that are lined up around the area and the messages that people had poked in them and the you know stuffed animals pictures of people that were missing you would look at that and you'd say i I can't take all this emotion. This is really too much. And I don't know because of the size of this story that you could ever really capture it. So what you have to do is bite off small chunks and try and tell a smaller version of a bigger story. Because when they do try to do vast, you know, can't you see a 10 part miniseries? I mean, I could just see it happening. You're really not gonna get the flavor of it. And for me, just looking at that and seeing that and trying to process what is it like to be somebody looking for a, a relative? And they have the, we have not seen this person since September 11th. Have you heard anything? Can you help us? I, it just, 
it tears at you. So um, I don't know. It's a subject that I think is very difficult to cover. And I don't know if any movie that we've seen thus far has captured it, but it can, pieces, pieces of it have been. The only way to really kind of, I think, get at it is to only address it in a very oblique way almost. And it's not something that you can address in any kind of direct head-on way. Jared, how old were you when 9-11 happened? 11. When they, did they talk about it in school? Did they try to help you through it in school? Did they just kind of treat it as another thing? It was a little bit of both uh, in terms of like talking about it, but then also kind of letting people in some, of the, I'm sure that some of the older classes and stuff probably had a different experience with it, but the teachers talked to us about it a little bit and then some of it too, which was like kids talking about it at lunch and stuff like that, so. These days, I think more of these issues are subjects for discussion in classrooms than they were then because we didn't know how to handle it. We didn't know what to say. And when we weren't sure where it was coming from, you know, initially they thought that it was just some random plane that was headed in and it was a, a mistake. It wasn't an attack. Seeing the footage in the, the Spike Lee documentary series, there's all these New Yorkers, you know, just kind of standing around when the first plane hits. Just the idea of just people kind of looking at it and not really grasping what was going on until the second plane hit. And then everyone fully realizing what was going on and running, 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 running. It's kind of anesthetized us to seeing something like this because we've seen these movies where stuff like this happens and you're thinking, oh, it's a movie. It's just a movie. You don't realize that it's more than a movie. This is life. Pre 9-11, I mean, I think people seeing the first plane hit and then kind of standing around is evidence that it really was a significantly more innocent time. I mean, up until then, there had obviously been terror attacks, even on the Trade Center itself. The only thing that I can really, I think, get close to as far as being a sea change would be, you know, the Colorado school shooting, the Aurora, um, you know, shooting as just completely taking. And I was in high school when that happened. So I certainly you know, remember going to school the next day and mapping out exits for the first time in my life in this hypothetical situation, which now kids have to deal with implicitly that's part of, I mean, you know, on their first day of, you know, middle school or elementary school contemplating these things and having to have these exit strategies coming down from principals and teachers and school boards and everything. So, yeah. I miss the innocence. I hope, I hope that kids can grow up with a kinder, gentler, gentler world than we have. Yeah. Since I mentioned one documentary, one other one I'll throw out that is definitely a different piece of all of this, and that's uh, the 2015 BBC documentary Bitter Lake by uh, Adam Curtis, which is a lot about, um, and it's one I've been thinking about a lot lately, because it's about the war in Afghanistan and has a lot of like really incredible newsreels and like archival footage of like the war going on in Afghanistan, and including like interviews and like like really close up stuff with like the Taliban and everything like that. And that's just another piece of all of this that's well worth watching if you've never seen that one. I actually have the page up right now for uh, the Adam Curtis documentary series, Power of Nightmares, which came out in 2004. Adam Curtis has a very distinct style 
of what he does. And it's basically pulling from the, the BBC's, I mean, vast upon vast video and audio archives and putting together a, a history of the Taliban and how it ties into the history of American politics. And it's a, another just fascinating film to add a lot of context and, you know, anything going back, you know, 20, 30 years or, or more to explain the roots of what happened on 9-11. People today are too quick to have an opinion without doing any research. And I think the more research you have, maybe the better opinion you can, you can make. Documentary filmmakers are giving us stuff that maybe we're not seeing on nightly news either. And it's also, I mean, it takes, it takes so much more time to add distance to where you can kind of emotionally disconnect from what you're seeing to where it's not going to be colored by, like I was saying, the, the turn between everybody kind of coming together to the jingoism and the opportunism that, you know, politicians, I think, leaned into pretty quick. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> but that's a whole other, you know, 18 hour podcast series. Back during the Vietnam War, I was a kid back then, and we would watch the news at night while we ate dinner, and they would tell us how many people died in Vietnam. And it was just like a matter of fact number. It'd be like today, where we talk about the number of people who have COVID, where you don't think about individuals. Now it's worse than like when you were talking about like with Vietnam and stuff, because now you can see that kind of stuff if you wanted to, every minute, just if you wanted to like doom scroll, through your Twitter, you could read about, you know, how many people died of COVID or how many people died in a hurricane somewhere or how many people died in an earthquake in this other place or how many people died in a terrorist attack in another place that you're going to forget about in five seconds. It's, it's weird how much a lot of that has just like gone into overdrive now. <laughs> There's a lot of information out there and just be careful what you latch on to. Now you can basically just shop around for the tragedies that you want to care about. <laughs> Let's have something fun. What can we talk about that's fun? Well, one of my news picks was fun, I guess. The other one wasn't to me. This week definitely feels like it was Matrix week because uh, the trailer finally came out for the Matrix uh, Resurrections, which comes out on December 22nd. Uh, this one uh, directed by just one of the Wachowskis, uh, Lana. Lily does not have a uh, directing credit on this one. And... Uh, our old friend uh, Keanu is back. Carrie Ann Moss is also coming back, as is uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Still no signs of uh, any Lawrence Fishburne or uh, Hugo Weaving as uh, Agent Smith, though. So we'll see if maybe they get uh, snuck in at the last minute and some cameos or stuff like that. But I'm really, really excited for this. I have talked before about how I liked all three of the Matrix movies, not just the, the first one. And I think the work that the Wachowskis have done since then has been mostly pretty solid. Like Speed Racer is a lot of fun. Cloud Atlas is one that people liked a lot. And I'm really excited to see how The Matrix Resurrections turns out. Based on the trailer, it made me think a lot of the first J.J. Abrams Star Wars movie. The visuals and everything that they're kind of teasing in the trailer made me feel like it was going to be a very comfortable revisiting of the world of the matrix. So I'm really interested in how they're going to elevate that, how they're going to add some new dimension, because I, I have absolute faith in for them to have, have a point of view and have all of this 
practically academic approach to the subtext of their films and the subtext of what they're doing. I had a roommate in college who wrote his senior thesis on all, all of the, the Gnostic imagery that's in the first Matrix film. And I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, I guess now a, a quadrilogy where you could dissect it in so many various ways and get something from it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that jumps in. You had another, uh, another little news bit, Jared? Yeah, my other one is the one I'm less uh, happy about, and that's the Halloween Kills, uh, still coming out in theaters, but also the same day and date that it's coming out in theaters, October 15th. It's also going to be on Peacock. I mean, that already, of course, means that that's going to majorly eat into box office. It's hard to imagine that it won't. I'm still going to go see it in the theaters because it's a franchise I obviously am a big fan of and have talked about a bunch, but really kind of annoyed, but also understanding a little bit why they did that. It seems like there have been two reactions to Shang-Chi doing so well at the box office last weekend. The first one, the new Venom movie got moved forward and is only going to be in theaters for you know a period of time. I don't know how long it'll take till it hits streaming, but Shang-Chi showed that there is money to be made there. So that's out on October 1st. And it's also worth noting, I mean, like the first Venom, for as goofy as it was, or, you know, bad, if you want to be really harsh. I had a lot of fun with it, honestly, but it did big numbers. Yeah, it is one of the most profitable superhero films of all time. And it's certainly I think it just decimated the whatever the, you know, highest grossing film was from from that weekend, you know, previously. Disney says they're really leaning into Asian films. So um, it'll be interesting to see what that translates into. I, you can see it some, somewhat in some of the choices they're making, but will this be like a whole new arm where there'll be Asian content? Because people still go to the movies in Asia. I got to tell you, they're not still at home. Yeah. Well, I mean, Asia has, you know, decades of mask wearing as a norm. And, <laughs> you know, they, they've certainly had their fair share of, you know, coronavirus adjacent, you know, pandemics that they've had to, to live with for a long time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how Halloween kills this. Because I know, I mean, Peacock, there's still a lot of people that subscribe to it, but it is pretty minuscule, I think, compared to Netflix and even HBO. That is one thing that I'm maybe at least a little hopeful about is because it's something that I, I don't know a lot of people that have it and talk about Peacock a lot. So maybe it won't eat into it as much as I might think. Well, my news, one of my favorite little things, and this will end up being a nice, uh, happy, positive thing, is that the um, a whole bunch of the cars from Mad Max Fury Road are being auctioned. <laughs> and whoever it was that they got to write the copy in these things is uh, just doing, doing the Lord's work. Uh, the Giga Horse, described as a Cadillac Coupe de Ville in flagrante delicto <laughs> with another Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Powered by twin V8s, slaved to a handmade gearbox capable of harnessing and harmonizing the ultimate power of the ultimate leader. <laughs> Is there a minimum bid? Uh, they haven't started yet. So I could put $10 down and maybe be in on it? Yep. It'll be two weeks, I think, until the bidding actually opens. Is there a piece of memorabilia you'd really like to have? Like, do you want Indiana Jones's whip or anything? Like, I want to shoot 
significantly smaller than that. I want the talk back from Home Alone. The talk boy? Yeah. Not the hoverboard from Back to the Future. They have those shoes from uh, Back to the Future. Nike made like a short run of those shoes that uh, Marty has. He didn't get them. Yeah, they were like thousands of dollars, but yeah. So, Chris, nothing? You can't figure out what you want? Was there like a, an actual like room 237? That's what I would like. I want an actual page that Jack Nicholson had in, in the typewriter from The Shining. All right. I don't care which one it is. We'll bring it about. It'll happen. They had a bunch of them. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want any, you know, it's, it's one of a kind, but it's one of a, a, of a many kind. <laughs> I would also take uh, Warren Beatty's coat from McCabe and Mrs. Filler. <laughs> Oh, not the, but not the Dick Tracy one? No, nah, the, the McCabe and Mrs. Miller one. That's an all-time coat, man. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, my little piece of news I want to ask about, if you guys can feel, fill me in on this. All of the Spider-Men say, no, we're not in the new Spider-Man movie. And Andrew Garfield this week made a big, big thing about you're going to be really disappointed when you don't see me in there. They have to be in there, right? Is this just a red herring? My gut instinct is that they're all going to be in there. So they can show the different universes where they all exist at the same time. Yeah. Or there's going to be a big convergence where the boundaries of the multiverse collapse due to Dr. Strange being Dr. Strange and kind of goofy. If anyone didn't show up, I would understand why it would be Andrew Garfield, considering those two movies now are kind of the redheaded stepchild of like the Spider-Man movies. See, I'm going to go the other way. And if he was in it, he has the opportunity to reclaim those films. Yeah, that's, that's true. What I hated about all of them is they started at the same point. Nothing, it was always re, rehashing. It's like the Hulk movies. They can never get past the beginning. Why can't we just be the Hulk and then work from there? But Andrew Garfield has two big movies coming out. Tick, Tick, Boom, which is directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is based on a play written by um, Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent. And it's basically Jonathan Larson's story. So he's playing Jonathan Larson. That will be a big one for him in November. And he also has coming out very shortly, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, where he plays Jim Baker. I am very excited for that. He's, his voice sounds like his. He's too tall, actually, to be Jim Baker. But it's fascinating to see him try something like that. So... Andrew Garfield, I predict, is going to be an Oscar nominee somewhere. What have you guys got going on that's worth uh, shouting out? Any good articles coming up? I know, Bruce, you had a couple of um, articles about the Monica Lewinsky show. I told you, I think, last week that Storm Lake is premiering um, in Iowa this month, and then it's heading around the whole country. It's a documentary about a small-town newspaper. That will be making, you'll, it'll be in a market near you in the next two months, and they are talking that it's a potential Oscar nominee. So look for that. I, I did a review of it this week. And then there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff coming. It's interesting to see what's down the pike. It's a lot of, hmm, hmm. Jared, what do you got? For uh, Men 11 stuff, everyone in our newsroom put together different uh, stories. And actually, since Bruce mentioned uh, United 93 earlier, the story that I ended up doing is one of the um, people that was on United 93, um, Tom Burnett, actually had pretty deep roots to the uh, Mason City area. His family uh, spent a lot of time 
around here. And so I actually talked to a family friend and uh, like priest that um, like was the officiant for his wedding. That was a really, really good conversation I had. And so that's going to be part of our uh, 9-11 coverage that comes out tomorrow is me talking to a family friend and priest for one of the uh, folks who was on uh, United 93. Chris, what are you up to? You got nothing? If anybody has made it this far into the podcast, you're listening to what I got. <laughs> this is the, uh, yeah, this is, this is my big thing for the week. So we can let Jared take us out, as always. Look, um, sometimes... You're going to go to the movies on the wrong night and the movies are uh, going to be closed. Uh, there's not going to be anything left showing for the night. But if you go on a Friday when all the new movies are out, I guarantee you, you will have the ability to see something good unless it's for some reason locked also on Friday. Then you're not going to see anything good that day either. Thank you guys so much for being on the show as always. And thank everyone for listening. Um, see you guys next week. Well, all right, that is the end of the episode. Next week, we're going to take a long look into the eyes of Tammy Faye, as well as the latest from Clint Eastwood, Cry Macho. You can check the show notes for links to where you'll be able to stream the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you enjoy the show and are taking good care of yourself out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. A great regret of mine is that in uh, 2019, when I went to the state fair, that I did not go and see hometown heroes uh, Slipknot at the Iowa state fair. I really regret not doing that. That was a, that was a goof on my part. <laughs>